Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. Welcome back. It was a big week at the court with oral arguments in the Harvard and UNC racial preferences cases. But first, Zach, any interesting news or orders? Well, GC, there were no new grants this week, but the Chief Justice did grant a temporary stay of a lower court order that would have required Donald Trump to release his tax returns to the House Ways and Means Committee. Now, the Chief Justice asked for responses by November 10th, so we'll probably hear more about this dispute in the coming weeks. The court also said that the Fulton County District Attorney can require Senator Lindsey Graham to appear in front of a grand jury. However, the court also assumed that his speech and debate clause privilege will protect him from having to reveal certain information related to his official duties as a U.S. Senator. Now tell us about those Harvard and UNC oral arguments, GC. All right. Well, we have two cases involving uh, challenges to the use of racial preferences in the admissions policies at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. So a quick reminder about what these cases are about. The plaintiff, Students for Fair Admissions, is a group that represents Asian American college applicants and challenges the way that Harvard and UNC give racial preferences to black and Hispanic students at the expense of white and Asian applicants. The data produced in the Harvard trial, for example, revealed that to give more of their limited admission spots to black and Hispanic students, the school penalizes Asians. Not only does it require higher test scores and grades of them, but it also systematically gives them poor marks on the personal rating. That seems extremely problematic. Yes, and it gets worse. So this rating, this personal rating, Harvard created it in the 1920s to exclude Jewish applicants. And now, just as then, Harvard uses it to mark Asians down, saying that across the board, they lack interpersonal skills, empathy, and leadership qualities. Now, why are the schools doing this? Well, they want a student body that is proportional, they say, to the general population, which means that the number of the, the percentage of each racial group on campus sort of meets the proportion of the racial breakdown uh, in the general population. But Asian Americans tend to do better than other groups on academics, leading to a phenomenon that admissions officers at these schools call overrepresentation. So the admissions officers put a thumb on the scale against Asians to reduce their representation in the student body. Now, if you're familiar with the Equal Protection Clause or Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, you might wonder how is this legal? It's legal because in a 1978 case called Regents of the University of California versus Bakke and then reaffirmed in a 2003 case called Grutter versus Bollinger, the Supreme Court created an exception to the usual rule that racial discrimination is not permissible. Uh, and it created that exception for schools, saying that schools were entitled to deference when they claim that diversity yields educational benefits. And so the court will trust them to use racial preferences in a way which is appropriate as part of a holistic review. In these cases, the court is reconsidering that deference. Now, oral arguments lasted for about five hours. It was a marathon. I listened to every minute of it. So well, let me give God you some of the you. highlights. <laughs> Before you give the highlights, GC, sure. two quick questions for you. 
Now, am I right in remembering that the new justice, Justice Jackson, she was recused from hearing the Harvard case, correct? Correct. Good memory. So she served on Harvard's Board of Overseers, which actually was in, uh, responsible in some way for putting Harvard's racial preferences into effect. So I assume it's safe to say she did not participate in the OA for the Harvard case. That's correct, although she did participate in the OA for uh, UNC and actually still ended up speaking almost the most of any justice. She was behind Sotomayor by like 30 words, even though she only participated in one oral argument. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, interesting. Did the court hear the UNC case first? Is that what I remember? Correct. It did. Excellent. Tell us your takeaways, GC. All right. So... I think Justice Thomas, who has written a lot about these kind of issues over his long tenure on the bench, probably had the most effective question of the entire day when he asked the lawyer for UNC the following question, and I paraphrase slightly. If this case had been brought against a school in the 1960s that discriminated against black students on the basis that segregation yielded educational benefits, would we have deferred to the school? Of course, the lawyer said absolutely not. And revealed Thomas's point that there is fundamentally no principle underpinning the school's behavior here. It's the same behavior that Thomas experienced during Jim Crow, just turned against a different racial group. Justice Sotomayor actually uh, curiously confirmed this point uh, by arguing that racial preference policies of the past caused lingering disparities that exist today and that accordingly we need to use those same reference policies to fix those disparities, a point which Justice Kagan also made in a different way. Now, in a way, these were some of the most telling moments of the oral arguments because they revealed that what the liberal justices were concerned about is not these supposed educational benefits of racial diversity, but in fact, modern notions of social justice, which the Supreme Court has previously held cannot be used to justify racial preferences. Now, Justice Thomas tried to get the lawyers defending the schools to explain just what are these educational benefits and how does racial diversity, as opposed to viewpoint or experiential diversity, provide them. But the lawyers never could give him a clear answer. There were two other interesting exchanges I want to highlight, likely prompted by an amicus brief filed by this week's guest. Stay tuned for that. I'm looking forward to it. And they revealed another reason that some of the justices were uneasy about racial preferences. Both Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh tried to figure out just who exactly is covered by these racial categories. How are Middle Easterners categorized, for instance? Well, they're white. And how is someone categorized if they self-identify as a Native American based on nothing more than family lore? The schools don't actually check these things, the lawyer said. But if they did, they would doubt the truth of the Native American ancestry claim, for example. Now, GC, was this a uh, subtle reference to (laughs) Senator Warren's uh, tenure at Harvard? One could not help but uh, detect that undertone there. (laughs) So just what exactly Justice Kavanaugh and Alito wondered is checking a race box actually telling the school about these applicants. Now, Justice Jackson, who again was recused from the Harvard case, uh, proved to be probably the least effective questioner of the day. Ed Whalen over at his Bench Memos blog, which I'll link to in the description, has a full breakdown of her strange questions. But there's one I'll note here that he doesn't cover there. Apparently, turning a blind eye to the data presented that showed different standards and lower personal ratings for Asians, Justice Jackson asked the lawyer for Students for Fair Admissions, How can we possibly know that Asians are discriminated against when the admissions process is holistic? This struck me as very strange for a couple reasons. 
be, first of all, in defense of color-conscious admissions, she was blinding herself to the fact that discrimination in one group necessarily harms another, especially in a zero-sum game like college admission spots. I think it's also safe to assume that Justice Jackson is probably in favor of disparate impact analysis, as many liberal judges are. But her question repudiates it, which, again, strange. And then finally, the weirdest moment in oral argument came when Justice Sotomayor repeatedly insisted that we still have de jure segregation in this country. <laughs> that is seg- segregation mandated right. by law like we had during Jim Crow. Justice Alito very gently corrected her. He asked the lawyer for the school, uh, are you aware that we have uh, – if we have legal segregation still in this country? Of course, he said, no, we don't, which – prompted Justice Sotomayor to get very frustrated and demand that, yes, in fact, we do, because any time we have sort of disparities between racial groups, which is de facto uh, segregation, if it's segregation at all, we have de jure segregation. It was a weird moment. Very odd. Very odd. But here's the ultimate takeaway. Having listened to all five hours of the arguments, I think we can say that a majority of the court is leaning towards doing away with race preferences in college admissions. Now, just how they go about overruling Grutter is unknown. For more on that, uh, Professor Ilya Soman has a great blog post over at The Volokh Conspiracy, which I've also linked in the description. Now, if like Justice Kavanaugh and Alito, you're curious what it means exactly to be Asian, black, Hispanic, or white, or where do these categories come from, stay tuned for our interview right after this. The Daily Signal is your source for election news and analysis. Join us on election night beginning at 8 p.m. Eastern for a live broadcast of the day's biggest stories. Our team of reporters and Heritage Foundation policy experts will be tracking the key races that will determine control of Congress. The live coverage begins Tuesday, November 8th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Visit DailySignal.com for everything you need to know. We are joined today by Professor David Bernstein of the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University and the Executive Director of the Law and Liberty Center. Welcome to the show. Uh, Great. Thanks for having me. So, Professor, you are an expert in many fields, from constitutional law to evidence uh, to products liability torts, but also in the law of race. What is the law of race generally, and what's your interest in it? So most Americans think that when we check these boxes, are we white, Hispanic, Asian-American, black, uh, African-American, that it's all just voluntary and that we can identify however we want. And in practice, to a large extent, that's true because generally no one ever checks. But in fact, there are actual official federal definitions of what each group consists of, and they're written into the law, and you're supposed to follow them. And in some cases, when you're getting a benefit from being a member of one of those groups, like via from action, someone may actually check and say, "Do you meet the definition of those groups?" So, you know, so some people sometimes people will say to me something like, "I have a friend who is a white South African. He checked off African American. Well, maybe he did, but that does not come within the actual legal definition that, for example, universities are supposed to uh, be applying, which is that you have to be descended from one of the black races of Africa. That's the official definition." And my interest is uh, probably not that dissimilar from most people who are interested in these issues, which is that race is just sort of a pervasive historical issue in American law, history, culture, and it continues to be so. So you've written a book about this, which follows uh, years of research uh, called Classified, the Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. Can you give us the overview of the book? Sure. So the book uh, is not 
you know, it's I won't. I, it may not be beach reading for everybody, but it's actually uh, tries to be pretty non technical. It's only um, uh, a future. It's only about two hundred pages, and one chapter basically just goes through the history of how the modern classifications that we use every day when we fill out forms to apply to college or for a mortgage or for to apply to be a government contractor or on the census, how those came about, how they're defined, and how courts. Uh, typically, um, will enforce them, and also that some difference, some differences in how these categories are defined in different states, as opposed to how the federal government defines them. And there's a chapter specifically about Hispanics, because Hispanics are sort of an anomalous group in that they're considered an ethnic group; they're the only separate ethnic group the government classifies, and how that came about, and how it turned out that we have you know these this very disparate group of people who could be anything from 100% European to 100% indigenous, to 100% African-American or African origin, to any combination there of how they all wound up being classified the same way. Then there are a couple of chapters on groups that are sort of on the margins of, of uh, whiteness, uh, so to speak, uh, legally speaking, that there were questions in the 60s and 70s when these categories were coming about uh, as to whether they would be classified as white or something else. Uh, this would include Cajuns, um, uh People from South Asia, like people from India or Pakistan, Jews, Italians, Poles, uh, Armenians. And the short answer, uh, but it's much more interesting than just the short answer, is that of all those groups, only Indians and other South Asians wound up being classified as non-white. But that was really purely a matter of historical happenstance rather than uh, any objective uh, rationale. Um, Then there's a chapter uh, about... Native Americans who have their own special rules because of their uh, tribal uh, agreements with the government and their history as independent nations. Uh, And that's all very interesting because in theory, you're only really allowed to classify people by Native American status for most purposes um, if you're doing so by tribe. But a lot of the classifications and practice are actually racial. So there's, in fact, uh, the stunning thing to me was a lot of the rules – uh, from the federal government involved being one quarter of Indian blood, and the federal government will even issue you a certificate of uh, of, of blood that says this is of blood ancestry. It says you are X percent uh, Native American blood, which I thought was like you know, well, that's really Nazi like. Actually, right, I was right. very shocked by that, but that exists. And the final chapter is uh, something that's actually getting a lot more salience now than it was when I started researching this, which was using race in biomedical research and the medical profession generally. And basically, NIH and uh, FDA, National Institute of Health and Food and Drug Administration, at Congress's behest, said in the 1990s, we want biomedical researchers to uh, classify their research subjects by race uh, and make sure they have enough, whatever that means, of each race in their studies. And FDA and NIH had a choice at that point to either do some serious thinking about what does that mean in scientific terms or just use the crude, completely unscientific categories that already existed. And they chose the latter, which has led to all sorts of craziness in the medical profession. So when you call these categories crude uh, and unscientific, can you give us some examples of how they how they really they are arbitrary? Sure, but let me first say that when the categories were um, put in the Federal Register, in other words, made into law by the Office of Management and Budget in 1978, the Federal Register um, ruling says specifically 
Uh, these are not anthropological or scientific in nature, and they should not be used to determine eligibility for any government program. And, of course, the government has adhered strictly to that. Right. They? So yes. <laughs> they are immediately used for affirmative action purposes, which is, of course, uh, qualifications for government programs, and eventually became used for scientific purposes without any scientific rationale. But as far as how arbitrary they are, uh, you, we could start with the Asian category, Asian American category. The Asian American category encompasses people from countries that are approximately 60% of the world's population and have subgroups, national subgroups within them that have absolutely nothing in common, not genetically, not culturally, not religiously, nothing besides the fact that one could broadly say they come from the continent of Asia. So what does a person from Pakistan or of Pakistani origin have in common with a person of Vietnamese origin or with a person of Malaysian origin? Nothing that anyone could think of other than the government has classified them as Asian. And meanwhile, there are other people who say, well, they just decided to use the continent. But they didn't even do that because if you're from Western Asia, like the Middle East, uh, if you are from Yemen or Iran or Azerbaijan, uh, you are white. Uh, and you could live on the Afghan border uh, in Afghanistan and be white uh, when you come to the United States. But your cousin who lives across the river in Pakistan is Asian, just by government fiat. Likewise, you could say come from a town in the Spanish Pyrenees and your next door neighbor over the French border is French, you're Hispanic, they're not. Yeah, interestingly enough, the Hispanic slash Latino category uh, is defined as a person of Spanish origin or culture. And that in turn in practice is oddly enough defined as do your ancestors come from a Spanish-speaking country? But you may not have be a really truly Hispanic origin or culture in the sense that you could be a Basque uh, from the Pyrenees and never have spoken a word of Spanish. Mm -hmm. You could be a Mixtec from Mexico whose native language is uh, the indigenous language and never don't speak a word of Spanish. But nevertheless, you become uh, Hispanic when you come to the United States. And in the Mixtec case, it's especially interesting because you don't become a Native American, even though you're 100% indigenous, because <laughs> Native American is defined as only encompassing Canadian and American Indians because the American Indians didn't want what they consider to be foreign, his, foreign Indians to be taking away their goodies uh, in the system. So where did these classifications come from? How did the man Office of Management and Budget settle on its definitions? So it's a complicated uh, history, which I do try to summarize you know, relatively briefly and in, in, in mostly in one chapter. But the long and the short of it is that we traditionally had um, – three categories in the United States. We had white people, we had people who were black or, you know, the old days they would say colored or Negro or whatever. Uh, this would be on the census and whatnot. And then we had, quote unquote, uh, Orientals. But even then, we, we often distinguish in practice between Japanese, Chinese and Filipinos, who were the uh, three major groups. And um, we had very few people from Asia in the United States, thanks to various Asian Immigration Exclusion Acts. So really, in practice, we were divided between the 90, almost 90 percent of the population that was white and the 10 percent that was black or so. And um, because of the cultural and legal one-drop rule, we sort of if you have known African ancestry, even if you were mostly European, you were black, and if not, you're white. So relatively simple. 
In the 1950s, the government, for the first time, federal government, started enforcing anti-discrimination rules against government contractors. And they had to figure out who do we put in these rules. At the time, religious discrimination, which was also partially ethnic discrimination, was considered a big deal. So they wanted to monitor uh, whether whether contractors were hiring Catholics and Jews and whatnot. It was very hard, but no one wanted to ask anybody whether they were Catholic or Jewish because that itself could cause discrimination. So this was sort of not that viable. And meanwhile, Hispanics, which were primarily those days Mexican-Americans, they weren't called Hispanics, uh, they lobbied. They had lobbied for a long time to be considered white, but now they wanted the civil rights protections. So they lobbied to be included on the forms as well. Uh, and Asian-Americans, like I said, there were very few of them, and they were just kind of stuck on the form for, well, why not? There's so few of them. So uh, the forms started off with uh, white, Chinese, Japanese, uh, Mexican, or and, and or Puerto Rican. Those were the two major groups at the time. Uh, in the meantime, we had uh, all these uh, refugees from Castro who came to the United States who were also from a Spanish-speaking culture. Unlike Mexicans and Puerto Ricans, they didn't really face much in the way of race discrimination because they're a much lighter European or, uh, origin population, and most of them have always considered themselves to be white. Uh, so the question then arises in the 1970s when the government is become, trying to keep statistics, well, is there a way of putting Puerto Ricans, Mexican-Americans, and Cubans in the same category, which they had not done? And Nixon, President Nixon, said, you know, Cubans vote for us as Republicans, so we need to put Cubans in there somehow. Uh, and... Why don't you put Cuba? So they so they decided to come up. We have to come up with a category. They started. It was Spanish surnames, Spanish speaking household, or all sorts of different things. Uh, but they but we'll see how they settled on that. But they weren't really clear how to do this. But once you add Cuban Americans, then all of a sudden it's basically anyone of Spanish speaking heritage because because it doesn't really matter. It's not a race thing anymore. It's just being from Spanish speaking. So. Uh, and uh, with regard to Asians, we're starting to get more Asian immigrants, and um, there aren't enough Chinese and Japanese and Filipinos, though, still to have separate categories. So let's just talk, let's just you know have an Oriental category, uh, and that. And but each federal agency had its own internal rules. So some federal agencies, people from India were white and some they were Asian and some they were other. And in some, they were still using Mexican uh, and Puerto Rican and not having Cubans. And some, they used the three groups, but they did not use his, any kind of uh, broad Hispanic term and so forth and so on. So Casper Weinberger, who was uh, then uh, head of what was the... Uh, what was it called? Uh, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, which was the predecessor to HHS, Health and Human Services, says we're getting all these data from different agencies about the progress different groups are making in education and health and all that, but <coughs> I can't compare data across agencies because they all are classifying people differently. And some agencies even had in other classifications where they put in Cajuns and uh, French people living in the Northeast and Appalachians and so forth, other groups that were sort of impoverished historically. So let's create an interagency commission to sort this out and just create um, basically uniform standards throughout the federal government. And they did so, but they did so in sort of the most haphazard way imaginable. Uh, there isn't a lot, and it was all done sort of 
I wouldn't say surreptitiously. It wasn't secret, but it wasn't public either. And just for example, the most well-documented example is how they came up with the category Hispanic. And basically, uh, and it's really unbelievable how haphazard uh, and arbitrary this was, they, they sort of asked for volunteers uh, from different federal agencies that were involved in this, and they took one Puerto Rican woman, one Mexican-American, and one... Uh, uh, and one Cuban-American to represent the three major constituencies. None of them had any expertise in anthropology or genetics or anything sociology. They're just random government employees. So you guys sit together in a room and decide what we should call this category and who it should include. And that's what they did. And they had a big argument. Should we call it Hispano, Latino, Hispanic? You know who knows what, and one of the, and the and the Cuban American participant was apparently especially vociferous in saying it should be Hispanic, and we have to trace it back to Spain. So the focus should not be on being a Latin American, but should be oh, you're of Spanish uh, origin, and that's what it came out. So we have this sort of arbitrary uh, classification, which which most people don't understand. I have my experience, which is that. Spanish, again, Spanish origin or culture, so that if you are from Spain, you are Hispanic, and you check that box, you qualify for anything that Hispanics qualify for, for, for. but if you're from Brazil, uh, you do not, because Brazilians are of Portuguese culture, they don't, they're not included. So I've talked to a lot of just sort of lay people, uh, you know, when they talk about my book, and they go, well, Brazilians are of course included, they're Latinos. Like, nope. Uh, especially for a white, they're European. So yeah, I understand, but nevertheless. So Fascinating as all of this is sort of in the abstract, it actually has really real-world implications for a lot of people in a lot of scenarios. In fact, probably more than most people think. Can you talk us through some of these real-world applications and how this rubber meets the road for people? Well, first I think we have to be aware that there would be no such thing as Hispanic identity most likely if the government didn't go and impose it on people. Even today, most people of uh, who are what we call Hispanic or Latino, if you ask them, their preference is to be called you know, Mexican-American or Guatemalan-American or Argentine-American or just American. They accept the idea, well, we're also Hispanic or uh, Latino. They don't like Latinx uh, very much, uh, but that's not their primary identity. And for Asian Americans, similarly, um, actually most Asian Americans don't accept Asian American even as a secondary identity, uh, but some do. And the only reason people do is because we have collectively, through the government, decided that these are the categories we use. Because no one in China, for example, thinks of themselves as, a mech- as an Asian. Or, you know, you know, if you live in Germany, do you think yourself, well, now with the European Union, maybe a little bit, but you don't think of yourself primarily as a European. You're a German. You come from Vietnam. You're Vietnamese. Someone has to tell you that you're supposed to identify with people from these other countries, uh, many of whom are your own country, ancestral countries, historic enemies. Mm-hmm. So first of all, the, the people's own self-identity. In fact, that's true of whites. I mean, it, the fact that we have a white category undermines, to some extent, other identities that people might emphasize, religious identity, ethnic identity, even like sexual identity if you're a white person. So there's that. Uh, and then uh, it also uh, winds up, because uh, we have affirmative action programs that are 
almost always based on these categories, it affects people's lives in uh, two different ways. One is that some people who think, well, why would that person be eligible for affirmative action are, and while we focus primarily on university admissions, uh, in some ways the real action is in government contracting where billions and billions and billions of dollars every year in government contracts uh, are allocated in ways that give a preference to people who are members of official minority groups. And there are situations where people move here from India or China or uh, Argentina. They are never face discrimination in the United States. They've barely been in the United States. They've become citizens and they have resources you know, from their home countries and they start a company, all of a sudden they get a preference over everybody else. And the irony is that these programs were really meant in the 70s primarily uh, to help African Americans. Uh, it's almost, it's impossible to get this data because the government doesn't want to tell anybody. I've, I've tried. Uh, and I've, I'm told that would be too embarrassing. No one's going to give you that data. But I, my strong suspicion is that a very, is that while, um, the original intent in the 70s was that almost 100% of, this, of these contracts would go to African Americans. It's way, way, way below 50% are mm -hmm. actually going. So that's one thing. Uh, and then there are other, and then another situation, another issue is that um, the, you know, universities, for example, follow these government rules. So they count all Asians together, and they don't want too many Asians, right? Because they, they, they report group by group, and they say, well, we shouldn't have too many of any group because that would be undiverse. But the Asian category is, again, this crude category, and, it, um, and we neglect the significant differences within the Asian American category so that, you know, if you look at, like, very few schools do this, but University of California or Berkeley breaks down for us which groups uh, are actually uh, being admitted, and, it's, and the group that's wildly overrepresented, uh, if you want to use that word, I don't like that word, but, yeah, quote-unquote mm -hmm. overrepresented, are people from India. Hmm. And then we have people from China. And uh, also, there aren't as many Japanese and Koreans, but they're also significantly, quote unquote, overrepresented. And then most other Asian groups are sort of at their population level, more or less. And then there are a few like Cambodians, whatever, who tend to do worse socioeconomically. Uh, and they are just lumped into the Asian category. So if you're someone from the Hmong community uh, in Minnesota, the Hill people of Cambodia, who are, who were mostly allied with the US and were allowed in as refugees, they have Overall, quite poor socioeconomic indicators, but you know, think about and they are subject to this soft quota against Asians. So they not only don't get affirmative action despite having you know, more socioeconomic difficulties than a lot of other Americans uh, collectively, but uh, they actually get discriminated against. And it's worse than that. You know, I'm thinking if I'm an admissions officer and I know I have this soft Asian quota and I could ex admit a Hmong American who you know will have to get financial aid, who may struggle, may take more resources to help. Them, them, mm. Or I could take the son of uh, two Indian doctors. Right. I will take the latter, right? Because I get the same Asian credit for diversity either way. Right. Uh, and a third way this is manifested is that the African American community, right? The government had a choice at some point whether to include um, immigrants from Africa and the Caribbean in the African American slash black category. They decided they're going to do so. But what winds up happening is that if you look at elite universities, for example, a very large percent, sometimes over 50% of their black students are first or second generation African or mm -hmm. Caribbean immigrants or, or, and or uh, people who have at least one, well, not at least, they have one, one non-white parent, one white parent and one African-American parent. Mm -hmm. So they're of mixed race. And 
and people who have two parents who are actually descended from American slaves are a sort of small part of the population. And this distorts, whatever you think of affirmative action, it distorts our idea about what, you know, you're pointing to certain numbers uh, whether they be number, you know, in general statistics about African Americans or how many African Americans are becoming you know, doctors and lawyers, and it distorts our perspective of what's going on. Mm-hmm. I'll, the, the easy way to put it is that you know the fact that the Colin Powells and the Kamala Harris's and the Barack Obamas are succeeding in American society doesn't really tell us all that much about how people who are descended from sharecroppers in Alabama are doing. Right, right. So you mentioned at the beginning where things get really concerning is in the context of scientific and medical research. Can you unpack that a little bit? Sure. I mean, this is just other craziness. And I I just, you know, because we sort of trust the medical and scientific community to be looking at objective evidence. I, and there's an article out there, a very polemical but correct article, saying this is, this is just crazy because when you're a scientist and someone says we want you to do a study, you figure out on scientific parameters, what that should be. They said, we don't do that. We just take these ridiculous categories that someone's imposed on us and use them. So um, this has a a few different ramifications. So first of all, the justification for doing this is that we want to make sure that people of different races are properly represented in scientific studies. Um, Why? Well, because otherwise they won't trust the results of those studies. But to me, this is quite circular because the only reason people think that it might be a problem if members of their race aren't uh, included is because the the authorities are telling them that. The point I make – so for example, this is a big issue and I think the most outra- – maybe the, mo- the single most outrageous story in the entire book is the fact that when Moderna was um, doing its research for its COVID vaccine – uh, the head of National Institutes for Health called up the head of Moderna and said, we've looked at your studies. You don't have enough members of minority groups in them, and we're not going to let your studies go forward until you recruit more members of minority groups. They delayed the COVID vaccine right. by, well, I don't know, a few weeks probably to get more people. But how many people died right. you know, in the meantime because of that? And there's no scientific reason to think that uh, African-Americans will – react differently to the vaccine. Especially there's no reason to think of Hispanics. Hispanics are themselves a multiracial group. Hispanics are like Americans. I mean, right, you can't, right. you know, they're black, they're white, they're indigenous or any combination. Uh, there's nothing that you, there's no reason to think that. But meanwhile, what groups did they, do we not do specific studies on? We didn't do specific studies on like a particular African subgroup that's known to have you know, different genetics. Or if you just want to stick with Europeans, Icelanders, Jews, mm-hmm. Hungarians, a lot of there are groups from Europe that have uh, distinct genetic signatures. If anyone would be worried that a medication or a vaccine will work differently on them, it would be these subgroups. But we don't, count, we don't break white people down by these groups, so no one worries about it. And it probably is no reason to worry about it. The only reason we worry about it is because we classify people by these groups to, to begin with. Uh, so uh, there are a lot of other troubling examples where um, the government, uh, where doctors, you know, doctors will, are trained to some extent to uh, treat people I mean, in terms of giving them medical treatment differently based on the racial group there are because certain racial groups allegedly have higher rates of this or that or lower rates or react differently to a drug. But all of this is uh, nonsense because there's no such thing as a racial reaction to the drug. There are ge- different genetic reactions potentially and we should be focusing on that and we should be isolating. That's cheap and easy enough to actually get people's genetics and uh, if we want to, and we're instead suppressing that information in favor of race. So, for example, let's even assume that there a lot of these studies 
are really hard to tease out the sociological factors from the genetic factors. But let's assume that it's true that African Americans have a different medical reaction uh, on average to a certain heart drug than uh, white Americans. Okay, well, we, have a, we still have several problems uh, if you're a doctor. First of all, it's all self-identified who's African American. You can, so let's say you are one-eighth, really, of African heritage, but you consider yourself African American. You're going to check that box, yeah. but why would you be treated like an African American? Second problem is uh, African Americans, because they're mostly descended from American slaves, are mostly descended from people from West Africa. Uh, people from West Africa may not have the same g- genetic uh, makeup as people. They don't, in fact, even within West Africa. Africa actually turns out has tremendous amounts of genetic diversity because people came from there first. So there's more time mm-hmm. for their genes to get, you know. So the, the easy example geneticists give is Africa is home to the ethnic group with the tallest people in the world. Uh, I forgot what they're called, but the shortest people, we all know the pygmies, mm-hmm. right? And they live right near each other. So it was, right? So, but, uh, even beyond that, like like Ethiopians and Somalis are more closely genetically related to Arabs and Jews and Armenians than they are to other Africans. So if you're Ethiopian, you will quite properly check African-American on your medical right, intake right. form. But why would you then treat that person as if they are the same as West Africans? Mm-hmm. right? So there, it creates all sorts of, of problems. And the really underlying issue here is that we're, we're relying on categories that weren't intended, were never meant to, were not tested for medical purposes, scientific purposes, and using them as if they have actual scientific salience. So how do we fix this? You suggest in the book uh, something you, you call the separation of race and state. Tell me about that. There's this notion that's popular now on the left that – Starts with the premise, which is a correct premise, that race has been and continues to be an important and salient factor in American life. Their response to that, though, is that we should therefore um, increase its salience even more and organize society around it mm-hmm. because that's how you treat something that's important and salient. But we have another uh, – um, example of how to treat something that's really salient and important and also causes frictions and leads to potential hostility, which is religion. Mm-hmm. And what we did with religion back, way back when, is said, okay, we understand that religion is really important to people. And in fact, it's so important that the way to avoid conflict over religion and to let people sort of live and let live is to have uh, something like the separation of church and state, or at least not have the government overtly favor uh, particular uh, religious groups uh, over others. And that way, religious groups could go on about their business without competing basically for the resources of the government. That reduces hostility, right? If there's, if there's a resource involved that people want, they will compete for it. If it's not available, then they don't have to. So this is you know, my underlying um, prejudice about how we should uh, – prejudice maybe a, a dangerous <laughs> word, but, but a theory of how we should uh, use uh, – treat race as something – yeah, of course it's – of course people feel strongly about and have strong attachments that are ethnic groups. And the best way of dealing with, with this uh, in general is to just not have the government take it into account. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that people can't have their ethnic uh, and other – and cultural attachments. It doesn't mean that we should ignore discrimination in society against particular racial groups anymore more than we should ignore or have ignored discrimination historically against Mormons, Catholics, Jews, and so forth. Um, But you don't want to be in a situation where uh, 
people feel that in order to um, get resources from the government, they must identify with a particular uh, group, and that um, you know, again, the last, I mean. I find it hard to believe that people believe this, but they, but, but you, you, could, you could look it up yourself if you don't believe me. <laughs> there is this argument one sees in the academic literature across all disciplines, sociology, law, anthropology, that what we really need in the United States is for white Americans to be more conscious of their whiteness. Mm-hmm. Once they become more conscious of their whiteness, they will recognize their white privilege – and once they recognize their white privilege, they will be much more open to giving up that privilege and helping minorities. I see. I, I have distant historical memories of I don't know cultivating white identity, maybe not being a super great idea. Right. I mean, the idea, <laughs> the idea that you can make the whole world woke. It's. I mean, like many ideas on the left, frankly, it's really based on the idea that there's no such thing as human nature mm. and we can just manipulate people. But I think there is such a thing as human nature and humans. Uh, to a large extent, not completely, but to a large extent, are self-interested, just mm-hmm. like all other mammals out there, right? Yeah, are right. out there for their survival. And if you tell people, hey, we're going to divide the world up into white, black, Asian, whatever, and whoever wins politically gets all the goodies, is in the long term, whatever thing you think, in the long term, will that make white people more likely to be forthcoming about helping out or redressing grievances of other groups, or we'll be more likely to say, we want the stuff for ourselves and our own children. I think the answer historically, sociologically, psychologically uh, is kind of obvious. The example I actually uh, like to give is after World War II and and the Holocaust, right, Germany, uh, as its ticket to admission to the world community, West Germany anyway, agreed to give uh, reparations, which of course were only a tiny fraction of the harm that Jewish people suffered in the Holocaust. But my understanding is if you talk to Germans then, they weren't in favor of it, right? I mean, mean, you can't come up with a better example. They stole, they literally stole stuff from the Jews and killed them. There's no, there's, there's no ambiguity here. Oh, let's give them some fraction of that back. No, we're the real victims. We just got we just lost World War II unfairly, you know. And Adenauer is only able to do it because you know, they said because he told the parliament, "Look, we're not going to be admitted to NATO. We're not going to be admitted mm-hmm. to the European Community." So he pushed it through, but not because there was popular support. If you can't get Germans after the Holocaust <laughs> to acknowledge right. that you know that that um, they have an obligation, the idea they're going to get white people in the United States to go completely woke and say because of the sins of our ancestors, some of whom weren't even in the United States very long, we are going to give up stuff for the other group. No, the way to see, so what's the solution? The way is to treat people like fellow Americans. People are very much willing to say, if my fellow Americans of any race are in need, I'm willing to help them. Mm -hmm. If my fellow Americans have grievances, uh, in part because of their race, but because they're my fellow Americans, that uh, I I have that loyalty to my fellow citizens, and I feel that way. The more you treat people as the other, the the more likely people are to be hostile. And this isn't, I mean, and I say it's human nature, but there are actual social science studies on this, and it turns out that contrary to what you might here from the woke, and not surprisingly otherwise at all, people who think of themselves more as being white people, have more white racial consciousness, think more in racialist terms, mm-hmm. tend to be more racist mm-hmm. and tend to be more hostile to people of minority races. And people who are less race conscious are less so. And this is exactly what I think you'd expect, but it's nice to see social science backing right. it up. Well, Professor, it has been fascinating to have you on. Uh, where can people find your book, Classified, The Untold Story? Well, hopefully it's in better bookstores everywhere, but of course you can always go to Amazon.com or or your favorite 
uh, other online bookstore source. Uh, they'll have it for you either in hard copy or in Kindle or other electronic version. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. All right, Zach, with race front and center this week, I thought for today's trivia, I have selected some of the most famous and infamous quotes Mm. from the Supreme Court's decisions involving race. And I want to see if you can identify who wrote them and or what case they come from. I'll start easy and get harder. Are you ready? I am ready, GC. Let's do this. Okay. Number one. The way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Well, that's a fairly relatively recent quote from the chief justice, and I believe he made that statement in the parents involved case where the court held that it was unconstitutional for a school district to racially balance the compositions of its schools unless it was remedying its own past uh, segregation. Correct. That uh, full case name is Parents Involved versus Seattle School District from 2007. Well done. All right. Number two. Here's the quote. But in the view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. Fantastic quote. Uh, Unfortunately, it was in uh, dissent. And it was from Justice Harlan's dissent in the Plessy case. Correct. Probably the most famous line in all of the court's race jurisprudence. Well done. It's a great line. All right. Number three. The black man has no rights which the white man is bound to respect. Uh, Well, we went from a great line to a terrible line. Uh, This is from the court's decision in Dred Scott by Chief Justice Roger Taney. Correct. Probably the most infamous line in the Supreme Court's race jurisprudence. All right. I'm stepping up the difficulty here, starting with number four. Here's the quote. As part of this nation's dedication to eradicating racial discrimination, innocent persons may be called upon to bear some of the burden of the remedy. I could weather a guess here, GC, but I'm not I'm not sure which case this one comes from. All right. This is Justice Lewis Powell's opinion, joined in this part only by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. In the case Weigand versus Jackson Board of Education, where the court narrowly held that a school board's policy of giving some teachers and denying others layoff protection on the basis of their races violated the Equal Protection Clause. Hmm. Number five. Here's the quote. The dissent attempts to marginalize the notion of a colorblind constitution by consigning it to me and members of today's plurality. But I am quite comfortable in the company I keep. My view of the Constitution is Justice Harlan's view in Plessy, and my view was the rallying cry for the lawyers who litigated Brown. This was from Justice Thomas's concurrence in uh, the Parents Evolved case, I believe. That is correct. It also includes this timeless line, if our history has taught us anything, it has taught us to beware of elites bearing racial theories. You know, Justice Thomas really has some fantastic lines in uh, in this space where he's talking about the harmful effects of uh, race-based discrimination. It's it's fantastic. Yeah. In fact, I think – a tentative tentative here, but I, I think that Thomas's opinion in Parents Involved is my favorite Supreme Court opinion. It is yeah. straight fire. Well, he is, uh, he is certainly on the money uh, when he is talking about these very, very important issues. Well, Zach, I have a bonus question for you, but your score today reflects your performance so far. Four to five. Very well done. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hit me with the bonus. 
All right. Uh, This does not come from an opinion. The quote is, we did not fight a civil war about oboe players. We did fight a civil war to eliminate racial discrimination. Well, who knew the oboe could be so uh, so controversial? <laughs> uh, but this is from the recent oral arguments in the Harvard and UNC uh, cases. And I think it was the chief justice that said that. That's exactly right. Uh, the chief justice just constantly delivering great one-liners on, uh, on uh, racial neutrality. The point he was making is that, and I quote from him again, it's important for Harvard to establish whether or not granting a credit based solely on skin color is based on a stereotype when you say things like this brings diversity of viewpoint. Hmm. Very interesting trivia today, GC. Well, well done, Zach. Uh, and thanks for playing. Of course. Well, that's it for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS 101 and email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.